He was almost paralyzed. Almost paralyzed. He had been in line for what felt like forever. And everybody who had gone through before him was asked the same question. This question and his answer had ramifications. It would change what his journey home would look like. It would change possibly the trips he would need to make. It could have ramifications on the rest of the world. Beads of sweat were dripping down the side of his face as he got closer and closer. His heart was beating faster until she asked the question, paper or plastic? Recycling's important. It could change the world. That's a very lighthearted example of understanding that we have a lot of difficult choices that we make in this life. Guys, I don't know if you've been told this, but life is hard. It is full of really hard decisions. Some of the most basic decisions, the ones that we get into when we're, when we're teenagers, when we, uh, it's the decision between, should I do the thing that's fun, but kind of bad, or should I do the thing that's good for me, but so very boring? Sometimes our decision is, is hard because it's between two things that we love. Or maybe the decision's even more difficult because it's between two things that we hate, that we dislike, that we can't stand. Every single day when our purchases, we, is it a, do we go the expensive route, the cheap route? old or new, now or later, one of the most divisive decisions in our country today, Android or iPhone. iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll have a bout out in the, uh, in the parking lot, settle this once and for all. And so there's a question I had. It's a question that I've, I've occasionally asked people, but it's one that I went to the good old internet to answer, and it's, what's the hardest decision you ever had to make? The hardest decision you ever had to make. And there was a list of them. At the bottom were decisions about education. Where should I go to college? What, 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 uh, what fraternity should I be a part of? The questions were, what major should I choose? And then they get a little bit harder because then the questions are about careers. What job should I chase? When should I know to stop chasing the job that I'm chasing? They get even harder from there. Where should I live? Arizona where it's hot? Or California where it's not as hot? Should I rent? Should I buy? Who should I date? Some of the harder questions is, who should I marry? I just did a wonderful wedding for two people I care about very dearly yesterday. I'm going to tell you something very truthfully and honest about that whole experience. It was beautiful, but I made a mistake. I forgot to bring their vows. They had handwritten vows and I didn't bring them. We all make mistakes. But after marriage, there's another one. Kids, how many should we have? 
Should we have kids? Should we adopt? Should we have our own? And then there was something that surprised me, which is actually quite helpful for the sermon today. And it was one of the hardest decisions we ever have to make. And that is choosing when to quit. Choosing when to quit. There's a fallacy that our brain has, has us do. And it's something that you see from in humans and you see in mice. It's this idea that I have put work into something. And if I were to quit doing that thing I put work into, it would all be for waste. And so I should just keep doing the thing that I've been doing. Because there's fear in changing directions. There's fear in choosing a different path. To form new behaviors and leave old habits. To transform the way we think and take on new perspectives. To make different decisions and leave behind old patterns. And sometimes the hardest decision of all, and one of the reasons why mental health is one of the biggest issues in our country, is deciding when to get help. And so that leads us to where we are in our series today. We're looking at what it means to make a decision to stop doing everything ourselves. In our series, we're answering the question, what would it look like if we did church like a 12-step program? Because there's some beautiful characteristics to a 12-step program. Because in a 12-step program, whether it's alcohol or dealing with eating or it's dealing with, with drugs, the system's always the same. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. When the last time you, you had the hit of whatever your, your, your addiction was, or the last time you had taken a drink, or the last time you had fallen on the wagon, you can walk into a meeting and be welcomed like a brother. Thank you for coming. And when you've been sober or clean for 24 hours, you get a chip that says, you did it. You've been 24 hours sober. And then you get one for a week and then a month and a few months and then years and years. And you could be in this program for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And life comes at you fast. And you've fallen off the wagon. And there's a warmth in knowing that you can go back to that very same room and sit down in that very same chair. The same chair everybody sits in. And have a group full of people that says, Welcome back, brother. And then after that first 24 hours, you get your first chip again. Because the sad truth is, is the church doesn't always feel like that. Somewhere along the way, Christians forget that this place is a place for the broken to heal. And we realize that we're, as long as we're on this earth, we're broken. So many subsets of people report I don't feel welcome in the seat that everybody else sits in. I feel attacked from the pulpit. I don't feel like I'm being called brother. And so in this series, the As You Are series, we ask the question, what does it look to make, look to make, what does it look like to look out in this community and say, come as you are, and for them to feel welcome as they are? 
And so we've gone through two steps so far. We went through step one. And step one is in the 12-step programs, we admit that we are powerless over our addiction and compulsive behaviors and that our lives have become unmanageable. In AA specifically, it's the understanding that we're powerless over alcohol and its ability to control our lives. What we talked about in that first sermon is that for Christianity and in church, the powerlessness is different. It's not just about our addictions. There's something inside of us. There's a brokenness that we call sin. Something that keeps us from saying, from making the promise of, you know what? I'm going to stop sinning right now forever. We can't do that. Why can't we do that? Because sin, like addiction, is ingrained. It's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. It's something that holds us back and binds us back. And dare I say, enslaves us in a way that we can't get ourselves free of it. And so step one is admitting that we can't do it ourselves. There's a powerlessness. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here's my introduction. I, if you haven't met me, I'm Pastor Bernie. And I'm a sinner. And in step two, we learn that step two is that we come to believe that there's a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. We have a common need of divine help, divine intervention. And Roger, Roger expressed a difficult part of that. There's the difference between AA and coming to church is that in an AA the divine power is one we feel most comfortable with. But there's a truth that when we, when we look at the Bible, there, is, there isn't a myriad of options. There's one. There's one God, and there's one Savior who can restore us. In Acts 4.11, it says, Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, but he has become the cornerstone, and salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we are saved. And so we learn a very important lesson, and that comes from Proverbs 3, 5, that there's a Lord we have to trust in with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, submit to him, and he will make our path straight. And so in step two, we learn a very important lesson, that there is a God, there is an answer, there is a Savior, and so, if we recognize and we admit those two things, step one, if we recognize that we admit our powerlessness and I believe in God's ability to restore me, then what's the next, next logical progression? It's step three. And we learn in AA, step three is we made a decision to turn our lives and wills over to the care of God. I'll read it one more time. Step three is we made a decision to turn our lives and wills over to the care of God. There's something very distinct about, about step three than, than, than step one and two, and that's it, that step one and step two have to do with admittance and belief. We admit that we were powerless, and we believe that there's a God who can restore us. But step three is a little bit more involved because step three makes a decision. It's the first time in the 12-step program that we, we have our own input. 
And that input, if you were going through a 12-step program, there's a mantra that goes with 12-step programs. It works if you work it. It works if you work it. Because in a 12-step program, step three isn't just one thing that we do one time and we say, yes, I've decided right here and right now that I am going to give myself to God and I'm going I'm I'm to dive into this program. I'm going to work this system. I'm going to utilize the support I have. It's not a decision we'd make one time. To work the system, to, it works if you work. It means that it's something that we're constantly doing. It's something we're constantly addressing. It's a choice and a decision we are constantly making. But there's a heavy, heavy bit in there. What does it mean to turn over lives and wills to the care of something else? the care of someone else. We talked about marriage a little bit at the beginning. And it's a little bit like marriage. When you enter into marriage, when a young couple is figuring out if they want to get married, when they're going through premarital counseling, there's an important thing to recognize is that we don't enter into marriage having all the answers. We don't enter into marriage knowing all the fights that we're going to have and being like, yeah, I'm okay with having those fights. We don't enter into marriage seeing every turn and corkscrew and and roadblock that's going to come. We enter into marriage as a promise. As a promise to day in and day out, give ourselves to that person, to commit to that person, to love that person, to choose that person. And it's part of the vows that we do till death do us part. And so it's not unlike marriage because like marriage, you give your life. It's not so much about the life I want to live and the things I want to do, but it's recognizing that there's another person I care so deeply about that I'm willing to change the direction of my life and I'm willing to change the decisions that I make and the actions that I take. And although marriage is scary, it's not something that's horrifying. It's not something that's so intimidating that people never do. People all the time get married. But truth be told, not everybody does it well. That's a sad part. And the truth is, is that we forget in marriage sometimes that it's a daily thing that we have to invest in. And so bringing it back, what does it look like to turn our wills and our life over to the care of God? Well, there's a very fundamental truth in that, and it's trust. It's trust. And it's the scariest part of making step three, because step three, with that trust, means means I'm trusting that this God that I'm handing my life, this God that I'm handing my wills over to, is the God that cares about me, is the God that cares about who I am. It's a God that isn't going to manipulate me. It's a God that isn't going to belittle me. It isn't a God that is going to to abuse or, or control me. But it's a God who cares so much about me that it knows what's best for me that I'm willing and able to say, have the reins. Please take the lead. Because I've been doing it this whole time and I haven't figured it out. And it takes a lot. 
It takes a lot to get to the point where we can trust God. And there's, here's where I think 12-step programs in Christianity have the most difference. Is because in a 12-step program, we're trusting God to help us with our addiction. But when it comes to Christianity, we're trusting God to help us with our sin. We're trusting God to help us with something that separates him from us. And there's a scripture that I want to read. It's Romans 5, 6 through 8. So please turn there if you have your Bibles with me. I think it's, if we could open up the Bible and we could say, you know what? If you wanted step three in the Bible, it's this. This would be it. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through verse 8. And it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Sorry, this is a different scripture than I was thinking, but it's a good one. Let's read through it. Very well will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for if we, we're moving on to verse 10, for if we were, while we were God's enemy, we were reconciled to him through his death by his son. How much more have we been reconciled through his life? And so this, this verse shows us that there's a separation that sin does, that there's a brokenness that sin gives us. It's a disconnection between God. And God said, I know that you're disconnected from me, and I know that you can't get to me. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the one who steps in the middle. He takes on the sin, the brokenness that we all do. And he says, you know, all the things that, that the world and humanity has, has done to separate themselves from God, Jesus takes that on and says, I'm going to pay the price for it. And he dies and he raises again. So that we, and this is the verse that I was really thinking about, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. So that if we declare with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's step three for church. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so there's this big question that comes for everybody in every 12-step program, in every church. It's a question we ask ourselves. Am I ready? Am I ready? And the truth is, is it's hard to be ready. Because sometimes we get stuck on step one. There are Christians and addicts who spend all of their life white-knuckling it, gritting and bearing it, fighting for it, trying to fix things on their own, and time and time again, smacking up against the wall, beating our head against the wall, never realizing that we are powerless. So many of us stay in step one. And then there's step two. So many of us have a problem with even understanding that there's a God. Because 
Sometimes we believe that there is a God, and sometimes we just don't trust him. Sometimes we believe a God and we think that that's enough. Sometimes we spend our whole life trying to find just the right God. And sometimes there's a whole host of things that get in our way. Sometimes we look at a faith and we look at Jesus and we look at the community that, that, that we have here and we say, I want that. I want in on that. What does that look like to say yes to that? But we hit some roadblocks. There's this misconception that all Christians should be loving and perfect people. And can I, can I give you a little bit of a hint, a little secret? Not all Christians are loving and perfect people. There's, a, there's some quantifiers for addiction. One of the ways that you know you're addicted is if you're willing to lie and steal to fund that addiction. And so there's a point in, in sitting in a room with other addicts, you realize, hey, we've all lied and we've all stolen, to, but we're all here together supporting each other. And I think that that's a fundamental understanding is that if you look to your left and you look to your right, you look behind you and you look up front, you're surrounded by people who've lied, who have stolen, who have cursed people, who have broken people down, who have belittled and manipulated people who have sinned in all manner of ways, emotional, sexual. We're all broken people. This church is a hospital for those to heal. And if it was full of people who didn't need healing, what would we be here for? Sometimes the other roadblock to, be, to answering the question, are you ready? It's, it's the idea that becoming a Christian gives up all the fun things that we love. We think that it, being a Christian is all about being really sad all the time about all the fun things we can't do. And I tell you, honest goodness, truth, no, <laughs> it's not. There's so much joy to be had without the brokenness. There's so much love to be shared without the pain. It's a lie that we tell ourselves and that our culture tells ourselves is the only things that are fun in this world are the things that shred you up. And that's not true. Sometimes we think that the church is a perfectly safe place where no one's going to hurt us. It's sad, but it's not true either. Sometimes the people in the pews next to us have the sharpest knives to cut us the deepest. And that's truthfully because we're all trying to heal. We're all trying to let that stuff go. This is uh, one of the hardest ones. And this is something I feel a lot as a pastor. And it's sometimes we think that in church, we should never say something that might offend somebody or hurt somebody else's feelings. I can't ask questions that are hard because I feel like it's going to step on somebody's toes. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and they've dropped the F-bomb in front of me and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, pastor, minister. You know, I, I, I won't talk like that anymore. And I'm like, if, do you think that Christ went around slapping people's hands and washing their mouths every time they cussed in front of him? 
he would have spent a lot of time doing that with the tax collectors and the sinners. No, there's a reason why it's called as you are. Because I don't need you to change the way you talk to me to talk to me. I don't need you to change the way you live to ask questions. I don't need any of that stuff. And it's not my place to demand it from you. Because all of the, all of the growth that happens, it isn't from a whole laundry list of things that we're not supposed to do. It's learning about a Christ that we get to learn to be like. There's another difficult fallacy about church and that's that Christians were not supposed to associate with unbelievers. There was a thing back in the day. I remember on Sunday school, it's like, you know, if you really love Jesus, you got to stop hanging out with those bad kids that say those bad words and do those bad things. Now, it was a confusing thing to me because I was like, I've done those bad things. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if somebody didn't invite me. Who else are we supposed to share the, the wonderful gospel of the, with than all the other broken people in our lives that we know? That one's a particularly frustrating one to me because that leads to people feeling unwelcomed here. And there's some really deep, heartfelt ones that get in our way of saying yes to God. And oftentimes we look at each other and we hear about faith and we hear about love and we ask the question, but does God really care about me? There's so many people. There's so many people who can do better things that I can. There's so many people who, who, can, who can share this gospel better than I can. There's so many people that seem like they've got it together. Why did God care about me of all people? Why would God care about me? Why should I even invest does he even have the time? And there's a scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and I'll tell you definitively, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But I've sinned too much. I've sinned too deeply. I have, I have done things with my body I've, done, I've thought things with my mind. I've said things that my, with my words that would make milk curdle. If I were to ever tell a pastor that, I'm sure I'd catch, on, I'd catch in flames. I can't tell you how many people I tell that I'm a pastor and they say, oh, I haven't set step, step foot in a church in years. If I did, I'd catch on fire. And it hurts me deep down because I want to love that person. And I want to say, you know what? I'd rather the building itself catch fire than you walking into it. Because you need the love that Jesus has to share just as much as anybody else. And so, no, there is no sin too great. There is no brokenness too deep. You think of the six, seven billion people on this earth right now and the billions of people who have gone throughout their entire history of the world and who lived and who died, that me being the one person God would be like, I've saved billions, but that dude right there, he's messed up. No, that's not who God is.
And I think that there's some expectations we need to lay out. If we're ready to answer yes and we say, you know what? Yeah, I'm ready to take step three. I'm ready to say yes to God. I want to lay out some expectations for you. And that's once you become a Christian, all our problems aren't solved like that. There isn't a sweeping moment where we say yes, and then God, like a, like, a, like a genie, comes in and just picks out all of the bad stuff. I think step three is worded so well because this step isn't, God, come in and fix everything. It's saying, God, I'm putting this in your care. Take it. I was in debt before. And I think it would be pretty, uh, pretty unrealistic for me to hire somebody to manage my debt. And the moment I hire them, say, am I out of debt yet? No, it takes time. Because it is a thing we work, a thing we live. It's a decision we make constantly. There's a couple other things. Sometimes we think that bad things don't happen to Christians. Oh, if I become a Christian, my life will be perfect from now on. No. We still live in a broken world surrounded by broken people who hurt each other. Becoming a Christian isn't a bulletproof vest that we put on. And there's one final one that I want to address, and it's the idea that Christians, just because they're Christians, always feel close to God. And there's something wrong with me if I don't. No. Because really, if you're making this decision for the first time, it's not the only time we make this decision. There are people in this room who've been Christians 20, 30, 40 years. And there's a point where we realize, man, I turned my life over to God and I took it right back. And so, as we close, if you're ready to say yes, if this makes sense, you don't need to know all the answers. You don't need to change anything. Come as you are. And don't do it alone. Talk to me. Talk to Roger. Talk to our worship team. If there's a, a person in this audience, in, this, in, this, in these pulpits, who you trust and you know that they're a Christian, talk to them. Share it. Because we do this stuff together. And if, as a believer, you realize, man, I need to turn things back over to God. It's okay to admit that. Because even if we're getting, we're stepping into the seat for the first time and saying, yes, I need Jesus. Or we're coming back to the seat we left behind and say, God, I need you back in my life again. I have one thing to say to both of you. Welcome, brother. Welcome, sister.